Hi, I'm Tim Sonova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck Live, the morning-ish show. On today's episode, Lauren Ruffin and I are joined by Cyrus Marcus Ware. Cyrus wears a multitude of hats as a scholar, visual artist, activist, curator, and educator. He uses painting, installation, and performance to explore social justice frameworks and Black activist culture. He is a part of the PDA, Performance Disability Art Collective, and co-programmed Crip Your World, an intergalactic queer-slash-POC sick and disabled extravaganza. Cyrus is also a co-curator of The Cycle, a two-year disability arts performance initiative of Canada's National Arts Centre. He is a core team member of Black Lives Matter Toronto and a PhD candidate at York University in the Faculty of Environmental Studies. Cyrus was an editor of the recently published Until We Are Free, Reflections on Black Lives Matter in Canada, and he also illustrated I Promise, a recently published picture book that shares a conversation between a parent and a child about how different types of families form. And I have the distinct pleasure of getting to teach with him in the Cultural Leadership Program at Canada's Banff Center for the Arts. Without further ado, Cyrus, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. So Cyrus, give us, how are you doing? Maybe an update on what the tenor is right now in Toronto. It's a rainy day here as well. I'm doing well. I've been self-isolating for a while just because of some health stuff. So it's not so safe for me to be going outside. So I've been inside. So the, the trip onto the balcony, the long journey onto the balcony to look at the sunlight is my big adventure for the day. Toronto is, it's a complex, beautiful city. It's a city that has an active disability community. So there's people who are actively saying, hey, you need to be thinking of those who are going to be most hardest hit by this crisis and stay inside for them. But we also have a lot of targeted policing in Toronto. And so there's been issues on the weekend about folks getting ticketed from being outside and some people aren't and some people are. And so those are some of the things that we're sort of dealing with in Toronto. But in general, we are well, we are healthy. We're starting to show signs of flattening the curve things are moving the way that they're supposed to. That's good news. So Tim gave you a lovely bio, but how do you usually introduce yourself? What about you and about your journey is sort of pops to the forefront? I would normally start by saying that I'm an identical twin. I love being a twin. It's my favorite thing. And I'm so thankful that I get to be twins with this amazing person, Jessica Ware. She's a scientist and a geneticist. So she's been helping and and in the fight, trying to understand how things have shaped up the way that they have. So I'm a twin. As you mentioned, I'm an activist. I love being an activist. I've been organizing for about 25 years around things like racial justice, disability justice, and prison justice. And I'm an academic, a scholar, activist. I've been working on a PhD and I'm almost finished, specifically looking at the experiences of Black disabled people in contemporary art environments. And I'm a dad. I'm a father to an eight-year-old, almost nine-year-old. And we have done every craft that you can think of in the last few weeks. Everything, making dough, making cookies, coloring, drawing, making videos. Like we're just going to the garbage chute is our big adventure. So. <laughs> That's what we've been doing. (laughs) I understand. (laughs) Cyrus, I love this story of when you were at Banff about bacon and getting up really early in the morning for the bacon with your daughter. Um, It's like warms my heart every time I think about that story. (laughs) Yeah, my daughter's pretty great. I would gush about her all the time. And she's a little activist. She went to her first protest when she was eight weeks old. She went to an Occupy protest that we had in the city. And she's pretty amazing. I mentioned in your intro, I have the pleasure of getting to teach alongside you in the same 
module at Banff Center for the Arts. And we were there two months ago at the beginning of February. It feels like a lifetime ago since that time. Our module is focused on change management. And little did many people probably know they would have an opportunity to be experimenting with some of the things we were talking about then. And I was fascinated by your session for a number of reasons. First, your amazing teacher and uh, what you had to offer was really amazing. The idea or the concept or the framework around panarchy cycles was new to me. And I've been reflecting on this since that time about, as Laura and I have conversations with people about what might a new normal look like or what's going to happen as as people start to interact again and where are we in this cycle and what's happening and could you break down for people or give people a quick overview of what are panarchy cycles and your thoughts reflecting on that as we're in the midst of global pandemic absolutely i mean panarchy is this conceptual framework that helps us to understand complex systems so in particular it helps us to understand the two seemingly contradictory characteristics of all complex systems, and that is stability and change. This idea of being in stasis and this idea of being in constant flux held together as a complexity that helps us to understand what's happening in a system. So there's this idea of a cycle of life that happens in a system. And you can sort of imagine it as a forest uh, life cycle. You know how trees kind of grow and flourish and then build a canopy and all of the ecosystems and biodiversity that go along with the forest grow and change in shape along with those trees until you have a huge canopy, you have a forest floor that's full of plants, and you have this complex system that is reliant on each other in order for its survival. But then you get to a point where there is too much. There is too much growth. There's more than the forest can sustain. And this is when you see things like rapid changes or collapse, something like a forest fire or something else that dramatically changes the system. It creates sort of a clean forest floor and new opportunities for other things to grow, for new plants and for opportunistic growth in the rubble and the decay from the forest fire. So this panarchy cycle is sort of like a life cycle and it helps us to understand stages of growth and stages of collapse and how they go together to help shape and create complex systems. Originally, it was conceptualized in 1860, the panarchy cycle by Paul de Poit, but it grows out of indigenous knowledge. And if you think about it in terms of a plant life cycle or a forest-like cycle, this is something that indigenous elders have been talking about for millennia. And it's a way of understanding the world. So if we understand that systems never stay the same, as Octavia Butler says, all that you touch, you change, all that you change, changes you. If systems never stay the same and they're constantly in states of flux and change, how do we understand where we are in the cycle? How do we help influence change in a certain kind of way? And how do we make sure that we are those plants that are growing in the forest after debris in order to build a new forest? So you can sort of understand it through the panarchy cycle. It's a really great way of understanding complex systems change. As an activist, I mean, I've studied systems forever. So this idea that things don't stay the same forever is something that we know to be true. And as an activist, I'm very excited about the possibility right now because we are in a state of collapse. The system has grown and grown and grown and grown and grown and mushroomed. And now it can no longer sustain itself in part because of capitalism not working as the way that it used to, in part because of climate change, in part because of all of these things. And now we're seeing this COVID-19 crisis. So we're seeing the system right now in a 
state of collapse and something new is about to grow. And we don't know what that new thing is, but I'm really excited to find out. If you were to, and I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with another good friend of mine who is in Ottawa and he was talking about his, you know, we're not going to go back to normal and things aren't all going to open up all at once. Do you have a prediction for what happens at the end of this cycle or end, I guess, now that I'm saying at the end of the cycle, how do we know we're at the end of a cycle? It's really hard to tell where exactly you are in the cycle at any given moment, just because there's often multiple things happening at any given time. That's the complexity of it. But we are definitely at the rapid, the sort of reorganization phase where things are changing and about to become something different. The hopeful part of me, the person who wants a better world, the person who wants us all to be free. I would hope that what would emerge after this is a society that looks a bit different than it did before, that wasn't so reliant on capitalism as its main structure, because we know so many people are being left out. So many people don't have access to the resources that they need to survive and thrive under capitalism. So my hope would be that we have a different system where there could still be trade and there could still be exchange and all of those wonderful things that we've grown to love, but that it wasn't rooted in a monetary system that created a class structure where some people have and some people don't have. So my hope would be that when we reorganize our society through this adaptive change moment that we're in, when we come back, we have things like what we're talking about now on the table in Canada, this idea of a universal basic income. You know, in some places where they didn't have standardized health care, now they're seriously considering standardized mm-hmm. health care. Like in the States, wouldn't it be wonderful if we emerged from this with standardized health care for all? And some of the sort of resources that are out there that would allow everybody to be able to be free and to survive and thrive. So I'm hopeful of that. At the very least, I think we're going to emerge from this as a society of people who have recognized that a lot of things that we do in public could be done from home. Mm-hmm. And I love science fiction. I love Me science too. fiction. And I love Star Trek. I just, I yes. would confess to be a, not even in the closet Trekkie, fully out and yep, marching at the front of the parade yes. Trekkie. But one of the things that I loved about that was that there was this episode once where they had these people who had been frozen in the 1990s and they get woken up in a pod and end up on the Enterprise. And they're like, but what do you guys do for work? And Captain Picard is like, we all have all of the resources we need to survive. So we spend our time doing the things that we're interested in. And I was like, there you go. That's it. That's what I would love to come out of this is that we all had what we needed to survive and we were able to spend our time doing the things that were most interesting to us. Wouldn't that be a wonderful outcome that would come out of this? And that in part will happen if we have more time because we're not commuting and flying all over the world and commuting for work and all of those things. If we were able to continue some of this work from home practices, we'd be allowed to maybe use our time in a different way. And that makes me really excited. Mm -hmm. Mm Have you watched Picard or Discovery? Of course. Oh, yes, of yeah. course. Oh, yes. <laughs> so good. And my daughter is really into it, too. And she gets so excited. On Thursdays, it's just very exciting. Yeah. You have to do something in a pandemic, right? <laughs> so why yeah. not binge watch Star Trek? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I went all the way back and started watching Enterprise. Great. Again, so it's sort of on in the background while I'm working during the day. Yeah, there's so many possibilities. And so when we think yeah. about sort of speculative fiction and Octavia Butler and Star Trek and all of these things that sort of suggest a future, one of the common things that I think that we look to in those stories is this future where we all basically have more free time yeah. and we're able to do the things that we want to survive. Yeah, I think about the Jetsons all the time. 
watching that as a kid. I'm like, when do we get to where they are? (laughs) Isn't that supposed to be happening now? (laughs) Totally. Cyrus, about a month ago, you tweeted, this was as people were starting to self-quarantine, quarantine, shelter in place. You tweeted something, a message saying, disabled people know how to survive in these times and throughout social distancing. I've got so many messages from folks doing check-ins and supporting each other behind the scenes in these hard times, and it's effing beautiful. One of the things we've talked about is how, what Lauren and I have talked about with guests is how things that were previously so too expensive or too difficult to do, online gatherings, things that had to be done in 3D in office are now suddenly possible, or, or people are realizing that they're now possible. However, people have been doing this work, organizations have been doing the work around this for years. And I'm wondering if if you could talk about some of the organizations, some of the people that you work with that you know, who have been really doing the work of making places, making workplaces, making gatherings inclusive and accessible. Yeah, I mean, I really, I mean, we can turn to disability justice and disability activism right now and sort of figure out what are some of the best practices because disabled folks have been doing this forever. We've been calling in, we've been zooming in for a while because for a variety of reasons, we can't always go in person to things. And it is, I mean, it was really beautiful when the crisis first began. The ways that disabled people check up on each other is something that everybody can practice. Reach out to that person that you haven't spoken to in a while and just say, oh, by the way, hey, how are you? Do you have all that you need to survive, to thrive. I think that there's a lot of possibilities there. I mean, there's some amazing and incredible work coming out of the States. Uh, Leah Lakshmi Piepsia Samarasina, if folks aren't familiar with their work, she is an author and a playwright and a performer and an activist. And one of the folks who helped to start Sins Invalid, which is the disability justice arts incubator based out of the Bay Area. And Leah has created a mutual aid Google Drive with all sorts of resources in there about mutual aid, collective care, supporting each other through a crisis, everything that you would need to know. I think she calls it a half-assed disability prepper guide in there for how to prepare for any emergency. So there's just so many resources in there that's amazing that I would definitely suggest folks check out. Also, Stacey Melbourne has done some amazing work, again, out of the Bay Area around disability collectives supporting and caring for each other. Anything that Sins and Valid is doing, I think, is incredible. There's so many resources out there. But I would start with Leah's mutual aid pack, just because it's a really good place to kind of get your toes wet if you're just starting to get involved in how to build community care webs. There's a really great resource in there by Rebel Sydney Black about pod mapping and how you can map who's in your pod, who you're looking out for, who's looking out for you, who are your immediate circle, and then who's the tertiary circle just outside of that and outside of that, and how you would draw on those people if you needed them, if you did get COVID-19, if you we're trying to not get COVID-19 and how you would sort of tap on those shoulders. So there's some great stuff out there. Again, I would just turn to some of the brilliant disability activists who can show us the way in these times. I've been following a lot of that work online. I feel like I learn so much from disability activists and I'm 100% with you. Well, one, has your sort of way of working changed besides crafting with your daughter <laughs> in every way possible? Has your way of working changed at all? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I didn't mention that I love to do is that I am a DJ and I've been DJing with 
and helping to put on a Black Arts Festival called Blockorama for 22 years here in the city. Mm-hmm. It's part of Pride. It's the largest stage of Pride. It's the biggest stage of Pride. I love it. And I teach a bit throughout the year too, but my main focus is on Blockorama. And what we've seen now in this new world that we're in is the emergence of the online Zoom mm-hmm. dance party. Yeah. And I just DJed for an Aries-themed one on Saturday. And oh my goodness, I actually think I prefer DJing from home. I actually prefer it. It's so nice to be in a party and people are there and you can see them dancing and you can see the movie. But I actually prefer, I did it from my bedroom. I just played the songs that I wanted to play. I could see people in their little squares having their little one-two booking and it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. So I definitely been changing the way that I've been working. I'm DJing from home. is wonderful. I've had a lot of Zoom calls like this with collaborators all over artists who I have met through, I travel a lot. I'm a very, very busy traveler. My art practice keeps me on the road a lot. And so I go to a lot of different places and meet people who I would love to collaborate with, but there's never time. And so right now there's time. And so I've been having all of these Zoom calls and connections to build collaboration plans going forward with folks in Australia and in Zurich and in all over the places that I've met with collaborators. So that also feels like a really exciting moment right now is that there's just potential for collaboration across distance in new ways than we would have otherwise done before. And that feels really exciting. Yeah. I went to a dive bar last night and listened to one of my favorite artists on Zoom, Asha Santi. She's a uh, DC based. Pretty Amazing. fantastic. I was like, this is exactly how an introvert should party. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, it's, <laughs> it's incredibly better than being at the awkward part oh. of having to actually go out. I oh. mean, put on pants and go out and stand in a line. Come on. Yeah, and as a oh. recent non-drinker, I really yeah. don't want to be around people. I don't have enough niceness in there to be out at a bar anymore. <laughs> but at so home, perfect. you can at have home? your hot chocolate. You can just <laughs> boogie down. I like, grabbed my little non-alcoholic beer and kept it moving. It was great. It's great. <laughs> it's really great. Uh, this is the conversation that I needed to start my week. Uh, <laughs> this is really amazing. Um, you too. One of the things we're hearing is about the overload, though, of connecting online. Whereas it's, <clears throat> it is amazing. I've been doing this with my own friends who I haven't seen for months to connect on Zoom. But then it becomes a Zoom meeting after Zoom cocktails, after Zoom dance party, and then a FaceTime. And then you're like, my whole day has been in front of this screen in this chair. Cyrus, how do you approach this? How do you approach your self-care and resilience in this time? Yeah, I think so much of it, again, goes back to drawing on disability justice. So like, what do we need to know in order to have a good day and to sort of thrive in our day? And so we know that as many times as we take breaks, we probably should be taking 10 times as many breaks as we Mm -hmm. take. All those times when you feel tired and feel like you need to take a nap because it is so draining, staring at a screen all day. And under the normal capitalist system and our busy lives, we normally just say, no, I'll nap later. No, nap now, actually. Nap when you can nap. Take breaks when you can take breaks. Like these are strategies that we learn from just then. This is, you mentioned in my bio when we did the cycle, it was a curated program trying to understand how to crypt theater. And so in theater, it's such a command performance. You have to go on stage, you have to perform. It's opening night. And we were trying to say, well, what would happen if we did it from a disability frame? What if we took longer breaks? What if we took more breaks? What if we rehearsed by Zoom? What if we didn't always have to be there on opening night and sort of imagining other ways? So I think we can kind of draw on those strategies and say, okay, how do we take more breaks? How do we build in more bubble bath time, more stare at the sky time, more watch paint dry time? Because those things allow us to kind of rejuvenate and enliven ourselves. 
similar to that panicky cycle, we are a complex system and we go through periods of growth and we go through periods of collapse and we are also complex systems and we need rejuvenation time. We need that forest fire and then the breath after it where we can kind of rejuvenate and gather what we need to gather in order to go into the next thing. And I think if you're doing Zoom all day, you need to build in a lot of love time and care time and nap time in order to be able to continue doing it. And then also to say that we are getting a crash course on what it is to be alone. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of disabled people who require attendant care in order to even get out of their beds, being alone is something that we've practiced, that we've had to practice. And I think that we have a lot that we can share of how to get through long stretches of time alone, because maybe you don't need to fill your day with Zoom catch-ups. Maybe there's one day a week where you're just alone and that that's okay. And to figure out ways to be comfortable being alone and just sort of having that quiet alone time. Again, we can draw from that. So I would say, again, check out those collective care strategies and we can figure this out together. That was one of the things that resonated with me with the the panarchy cycles was that once you learn it, then you realize that it's not just one. You point this out, like each one of us have that. And then you start to layer them together. And then our organization has that. And then our sector has that. And our world has that. And our city has that. And you get to see just how complex this is and how you might be in one part, but the people on your team might be in another part. And then the tensions Mm -hmm. around those things and what you're dealing with was quite resonant to me. And I'm really thankful to you and the rest of the Banff team who included that. I feel bad every time I go to Banff, I'm like, I think I learn more than I'm giving, but (laughs) (laughs) hopefully it's at least like net neutral here. That really was powerful framework. The cycles can be nested into themselves exponentially and in an infinite way. So you never know where someone is in that cycle. And it's really, I mean, sometimes we don't even know where we are in the cycle because we're in a state of flux. But yeah, absolutely. That's way messier than some of the other sort of organizational development, like ways people think about it. Like you've got, who was it, Tuckman, who's like, you know, groups get together and then you're norming and you're storming and forming and performing. And it seems that we're all moving at the same pace as individuals and that all organizations go through those cycles. But I do like the sort of chaos in this. And I love that, of course, it's, you know, panarchy. But yeah, it really works for me. Yeah, I don't know if there's a possibility to show images, but we can always post. There's a beautiful image of this forest rejuvenation that helps to kind of, I'm drawing it, but imagine an infinity symbol is sort of how yeah. energy works. Yeah. But the organizational development stuff that we typically think about happens in a really, really orderly way. And the other thing about the forest cycle is, and living in the Southwest now, wildfire can happen anytime. Or you could be going, you know, way past your typical cycle and a wildfire hits. I'm also thinking about in your personal cycle, have you had that moment where you felt like things were going pretty well besides this pandemic? I mean, I feel like we all go through it, but once you get smacked by something, how do you stay resilient and sort of pick yourself back up and then stay within your mind to be able to know where you are in that cycle or how to get back on cycle? Yeah, totally. I mean, it helps to remember that this is the natural thing. I mean, part of why I am so drawn to the panarchy cycle as a concept is that it's something to hold on to when you're in the middle of the storm and you're being battered all over, is that you know that things are changing and that they're going to continue to change. I mean, this is what Octavia Butler was saying in Parable of the Sword. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, change changes you. Touch change, shape change. Change is the only constant. To be able to hold on to the fact that this is part of a cycle and that you will come out of it, there are these two four loops and ground loops that sort of growth and then collapse and that you will get to the next part is something to hold on to. 
I actually had the opportunity to have lunch with Octavia Butler and spend oh, a day with her. We can end it all now. <laughs> <laughs> and spend the day with her. And I asked her how she was able to sort of predict the future in the way that she did and how she was able to kind of imagine these worlds. And she just basically said, if you just continue on the trajectory that we're going on right now, it's very easy to imagine the collapse and the fall and the rise and the collapse. I mean, this is just something that happens again and again and again. And so she felt that she wasn't predicting the future. She was just saying, if we continue on this road with no changes, this is the direction we're going in. So she understood systems change and system thinking and wrote it into her books. Yeah. I stumbled upon her relatively late in life, like in my 30s. And I've always been like a sci-fi reader. I feel like I cracked Parable of the Sower. I'm afraid of violence, which is weird. In my real life, fine, but I can't read about it or watch it on television. So I felt like I picked it up and just kept putting it back down. I owned it. And I finally read it in my early 30s. And it was life-changing. Yeah. If folks haven't read it, I mean, what a time to read parable of the sower this is the time to read it but it's really about a society that's right at the moment of collapse and it's been in a steady decline but now they're at the bottom of that collapse loop and the main character lauren olamina without realizing it she's actually planting the seeds for the forest it's about to grow yeah and yeah it's amazing yeah i would say her and then broken earth trilogy by nk yeah. jemison is another one that's sort of as i'm thinking about putting panarchy cycles into some of the, my favorite reads her sort of Jemison's talking about sort of how the earth heaves and breaks apart and separates. And I mean, that whole story is about cycles yes. of growth and change. Uh, well, we have to land the planet sometime people. Um, <laughs> did, you, did you find the image? I did, but I'll post a link to it. It'll be okay, easier okay. for people to explore because Great. I found a lot of images and I was wary that I might cut off our live feed if I start poking around too much. <laughs> so, so in the interest of keeping the conversation going, we'll just post a link to it. Cyrus, what are some of your thoughts as we close our time together today? I just want to say we are going to survive this. We are going to make it through this stronger and better. All of the things that we were doing when we were sort of imagining these prefigurative politics, we were imagining these future worlds that were possible. Now is the time to try to put those plans into action. We have the possibility of building a world where we all get to be free and where we all get to thrive. And I can't wait to get involved in organizing to try to make that happen. Uh, when we come out of this, we're going to come out of this different. And I hope that we come out of this better than ever. I am so thankful, Tim, to have had the chance to work alongside you at Banff and to have learned from you. And it's so great to meet you and just to be able to be part of this conversation and to know that I'm standing shoulder to shoulder from my apartment to your apartment, trying to make the world a better place. We're going to come out of this stronger and better. And I can't wait. It's been absolutely yeah, a wonderful morning with you, Cyrus. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Continue the Work Shouldn't Suck live adventure with us on our next episode when we're joined by Gail Kreider, President and CEO at National Art Strategies. Miss us in the meantime? You can download more Work Shouldn't Suck episodes from your favorite podcasting platform of choice and rewatch Work Shouldn't Suck live episodes over on workshouldsuck.co. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. If you didn't enjoy this chat, please tell someone about it who you don't like as much. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.